Hi everyone, welcome back to Wired to be Weird, a podcast where Bo and I use our brains to talk about the brain. I'm Ian McLaughlin and I study the brain. And I'm Bo. In the last episode, Ian and I sort of introduced the discussion of whether addiction is a disease or disorder. And we ended up talking a lot about the history of addiction, as well as some of the controversies regarding the origins of some of the drug laws that were passed decades ago. Right, like the fact that while the medical community that serves within the government explicitly describes addiction as a disease, the law enforcement community that serves within the government certainly doesn't treat it like any other disease. Like we said last time, it would be crazy if police officers suddenly started just locking cancer patients up, punishing them for having this disease. But if, as NIDA declares, addiction is indeed a disease, that's essentially what we're doing when we put heroin or MDMA users in prison, if we go by the logic of our current drug laws. Right, exactly. We also talked about the interesting history behind a prominent pharmaceutical company that first marketed heroin as what would be an over-the-counter drug, as well as the controversial history behind how MDMA, otherwise called ecstasy or molly, became as illegal as it is via the RAVE Act, which was based on retracted scientific studies. Yep, uh, which also involves some juicy back and forth between the two most important scientific journals in biomedical science, including the accusation that the Bush administration was waging a, quote, jihad against recreational drug use, unquote. Right. Well, since we discussed a fair bit about the basis of the argument that addiction is disease in the last episode, why don't we start by discussing the argument that it's not a disease? Sure, good idea. Um, Though, I should say that we definitely didn't cover all of the research that serves as a foundation for the argument that addiction is a disease, but just to recap the overall argument, there are several fundamental points that form the basis of the argument. First, researchers have found multiple correlates of addiction. And by that, I mean something beyond just unproblematic drug use in our physiology. This ranges from mapping out brain circuitry associated with addiction-like behaviors in simpler organisms like rodents, to identifying general regions of the human brain that distinguish people who are addicted to drugs from those who use drugs without any apparent issue. And then there's the genetics research that we talked about, SNPs. That's right. So for anybody that isn't up to date on the podcast episodes... And if you're not, you should at least listen to the last episode. Definitely true, because that'll make this episode far more interesting. But for those who haven't heard the last episode, SNPs are short nucleotide polymorphisms, which are basically differences at a very specific point in the code of a gene that result in slight differences in what that gene produces. But while these are slight differences at the genome code level, they can result in substantial differences at the level of the body, particularly when it comes to the effects of drugs. What's an example of a SNP causing a significant difference in how people react to drugs? So a classic example is the alcohol flush, sometimes called the Asian flush, which happens when people with a certain SNP have their face, neck, and upper body turn beet red soon after drinking something that contains alcohol. And since it's more common among Asian communities, and more specifically Northeast Asian populations like those in China, Korea, and Japan, it's most commonly associated with people of Asian descent. Okay, can we talk about that really quickly? Why is it that this SNP causes a different response to alcohol? I mean, is it because some people just have a lower tolerance to alcohol, so they get drunker faster? Not quite. So the metabolism of alcohol is a little complicated, but the flush reaction to alcohol can be boiled down to two enzymes in the liver. These enzymes are encoded by two genes, one being the ADH gene, the other being the ALDH2 gene. And so the short story is that among the people who experience the flush reaction, which, by the way, also can include more severe reactions like nausea, tachycardia, or increased heart rate, there's an accumulation of a toxic byproduct of alcohol called acetaldehyde that would otherwise be metabolized more efficiently. It would be metabolized more efficiently because a more active enzyme is present in people who don't have the SNP that's common among Northeast Asian populations. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, And because these folks have such an unpleasant reaction to alcohol, they're considered to have inherited a protection against alcoholism. Inherited a protection against alcoholism simply because alcohol is unpleasant? Yeah, I mean, so think of it this way. You love hamburgers, right? Love them. Right. Now imagine that every time you ate a hamburger, somebody punched you in the stomach. (laughs) That would be someone very evil. Yeah, exactly. You'd think that this person is evil, and you'd probably also stop eating hamburgers. Uh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so similarly, because the people who inherit this reaction to alcohol have such an unpleasant reaction to alcohol, 
They tend to enjoy alcohol quite a bit less than people who metabolize alcohol the way that those who didn't inherit the SNP do. In that way, they are protected against alcoholism because they're less likely to enjoy alcohol in the first place. So then the next question is why? I mean, why does such a large part of the population have this SNP? Well, I mean, I don't know that I would call it a large part of the population. I don't really know what the statistics are. But if you think about it, right, there's a large... There, there's quite a bit of genetic diversity, right? And, you know, humans have been drinking alcohol for a pretty long time, but not for the entire evolutionary history of humans, right? Or of Homo sapiens or of primates in general. And so, and it also, it's not like alcohol is a necessary component of survival, right? It's not like people who can enjoy alcohol are more or less likely to reproduce, or at least I would suspect, and certainly not over the course of human development, right? And so there just wasn't an evolutionary pressure for that not to be, uh, you know, propagated. So it's not just because Genghis Khan had it and passed it on to everyone in the region. Right, yeah, like everybody's related to Genghis Khan apparently, or Genghis Khan. Um, well, I mean, so in a way, I mean, of course, I don't know if Genghis Khan himself had did or did not have this SNP, but I mean, there was a mutation in somebody along, you know, the course of human development, and that person gave rise to other people. Their progeny inherited that gene, and on and on it went, right? Their progeny spread it to their progeny, and so on. And so just because it didn't interfere with that, you know, that gene pool, it didn't interfere with their ability to reproduce, it wasn't selected out. Those people weren't less likely to reproduce, right? So it, even if it wasn't Genghis Khan, somebody at some point had the mutation, and it was propagated. Okay, so that's one very specific example of the relationship between genetics and addiction. And as far as I'm aware, that's a kind of unique reaction to drug use. So how does that relate to addiction in general? Well, it's more complicated than it may seem. Oh, shocking. Right, I know. But as George Koob, the director of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, has noted in a publication from earlier this year, alcohol use disorder is influenced by two major components, the environment, and genes. And beyond that, the genes associated with alcoholism are highly diverse. Highly diverse, meaning what exactly? That they exist in a diverse population or that there are a bunch of genes involved in alcoholism? The latter. There are many genes that have been associated with alcoholism, which makes it a bit more difficult to simplify the relationships between the genes that an addict has inherited and their addiction. Also, some of these genes are shared with addictions to other drugs. While there are some genes that are unique to other drugs like nicotine or opioids. Okay, before we get into specifics, let's talk about some of our sponsors for this week. So, Burrow. Um, Burrow makes sofas, and they are made from the same high-quality materials such as Pottery Barn and other high-end retailers incorporating sustainably sourced North American hardwoods and naturally stain-resistant, chemical-free fabrics. Burrow couches are engineered to be modular and shipped direct to the consumer in compact boxes in less than a week for half the price of other designer sofas. And half the price sounds great to anyone living on a grad student budget. That's true. Uh, but what I love about these couches is that they're modular, which means that you can fit them well into tiny apartments and you can move them around without having to hire muscle. And the best thing, though, is that they have integrated USB ports so that you can lay on the sofa and charge your phone and just be there for hours without having to move. <laughs> okay, so visit burrow.com, B-U-R-R-O-W.com to check it out and use the promo code WIRE to get $50 off. And we'd like to thank Backyard Media for connecting us with this episode's sponsors. Yeah, thanks, folks. All right, to get back into it, we sort of hinted at the resistance to the brain disease model of addiction in the last episode. Has there always been resistance to the disease model? There was definitely some resistance fairly early on. So for example, Stanton Peel, an author of several books on alcoholism, and Bruce Alexander, a Canadian psychologist who conducted a fairly infamous experiment that's been dubbed the Rat Park Experiment, both ultimately argue that the brain disease model of addiction is wrong because it doesn't appreciate social context enough. And you can never trust someone who has two first names. Bruce <laughs> Alexander. Oh. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Okay, so I feel like the Rat Park experiment comes up every now and then in your live streams. Oh, for sure. And, and I honestly feel like a whole podcast could be devoted to that paper alone because it's a complicated story and it's very, very regularly misinterpreted and has some serious methodological problems that are almost never brought up when people discuss it, while using it to suggest that addiction is so simple as just being all about a lack of human connection. 
Should we get into that? Well, it's kind of a long story, um, and I'd, I'd really love to get into it, but I know that I just go on and on. But suffice it to say that many, many addiction researchers are very, very frustrated that this old, problematic study has been touted by clinicians and journalists as evidence that the biochemistry of addiction is secondary, at most, to environmental factors like the lack of human connection or purpose. I do, however, think that the points that some of these folks make regarding how ineffective the current approach to drug policy uh, is, and that the war on drugs is the wrong way to go if our goal is to minimize the societal harm of drug addiction. But by simply sidestepping some of the data that we'll be talking about that was collected by scrupulous scientists who spent their lives conducting carefully structured experiments just because a controversial study can be used to support a simpler narrative is deeply frustrating. Okay, so maybe at another time we can really dig into what's wrong with the study because it's definitely not the first time it's come up and it seems like you have a lot more to say about it. Yeah, okay, probably a good idea. All right. Well, can you give us an example of how addiction can be linked to genetics? Yeah, that's a good idea. So uh, there are some examples that are associated with pretty much every drug that's used recreationally. So let's go into some examples that have been identified in just the past few years. So for example, uh, recent genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, G-W-A-S, um, were used to identify points within the genome that associated with substance use disorder in general. Okay, wait, really quick. GWAS, explain that for me. Right, so um, a GWAS, or a genome-wide associated study, once again, is basically an experiment to see if there are particular genetic variants in people that associate with a specific trait. In the case of the study we're discussing, the trait is addiction, but it can be more specific, like addiction to a specific drug, for example. So the researchers are seeing if unique genetic mutations that occur in specific people are associated with things like addiction. That's right. And so um, studies that evaluate these comparisons have been able to show associations between people with mutations in part of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Which is something you study. Yep, I do. Uh, but So in any case, mutations in this receptor subunit have been associated with lower ratings of aversive effects of nicotine, which means that people are likely able to consume higher doses of nicotine without feeling the side effects of super high doses. And so, in other words, they can smoke more cigarettes, cigars, hookah, pipes, or e-cigs, or even chew more tobacco before they start feeling nauseous or jittery or anxious. And they continue to enjoy smoking at those high doses? That's right. And you say that this is a mutation in a specific part of the nicotine receptor. So I assume that means that there are other mutations in the nicotine receptor that people can inherit, and not all of them are associated with this ability to consume a ton of nicotine without feeling gross? That's exactly right. And when it comes to substance use disorder in general, we can look at things like monozygotic twin studies to see just how inheritable addiction appears to be. By monozygotic twins, <laughs> you mean identical twins, right? Yeah, so in other words, only one egg has been fertilized, forming only one zygote that then divides into two separate embryos that then become two separate people. And I assume that means they're basically identical at a genetic level, right? Exactly. And we can compare how frequently a given condition arises in identical twins versus fraternal, who aren't as sim uh, similar at a genetic level. Which would give us an idea of how much genetics contributes to the likelihood that a disease or a disorder will occur. Right. If it occurs in both identical twins more frequently than it does in, say, fraternal twins, then the fact that identical twins are more similar at a genetic level is likely the culprit. In other words, since more of their genes are identical than non-identical twins, and they're more likely to develop the condition, then their shared genetics is most likely the source of the predisposition to the condition. Okay, and so what do these twin studies show? So these types of studies have shown that there um, does seem to be a genetic contribution to addiction to drugs like cocaine and opioids, though there's clearly a significant role played by the environment as well. Anyways, others, like uh, Richard de, Grand, de Grandpre, <laughs> of course I'm going to butcher that last name, but um, he uh, similarly argued that reducing addiction down to neuronal activity neglects the important role that the environment has on promoting addiction. Or, as David Courtright, a professor of history, notes, uh, de Grandpre argued that, quote, it's not just neurons pickled in a sea of exogenous toxins, end quote. In other words, they're arguing that the brain disease model of addiction isn't taking the role of the environment and addiction into consideration enough. Right. 
Though I do think there's a bit of a straw man here. I don't think any serious addiction researcher in neuroscience would ever argue that the environment has no role to play, nor that the only significant thing to understand is neurophysiology. Rather, I think we'd argue that a deeper understanding of the neurophysiology of addiction will put us in a stronger position to understand all of the factors, including environmental and experiential factors, that predispose people to or, or exacerbate addiction as well as help us to develop more effective treatments for addiction. And in point of fact, the only reason that we neuroscientists are so focused on the nervous system in the first place is because it's the fundamental part of our biology that enables us to interact with the environment in purposeful ways. It's not just chemical reactions. It's more complicated than that. Okay, so you think that neuroscientists take environmental factors into consideration more than some of these folks give them credit for. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call myself an expert of the arguments that um, people like de Grand Prix make, but I can say that while it's true that neuroscientists focus on neurophysiology, because something as complicated as the human nervous system demands the entirety of a human's attention, neuroscientists with whom I've interacted see it as a part of a larger system within the context of the environment. So anyways, more broadly, social scientists tend to have a pretty healthy and reflexive skepticism of biological essentialism. Biological essentialism. <laughs> okay, right. So again, there's a ton of meaningful baggage to the whole discussion of biological essentialism. But basically, the roots of this skepticism are, at least in part, based on the fact that biologically essentialist arguments have been used for some terrible purposes in the past. Wait, so what exactly is biological essentialism other than sounding like a cult? <laughs> So basically, it's the idea that we can pin things like intelligence, personality, or sexuality entirely to specific biological features, rather than a more complicated product of society and upbringing. Okay, so would a biological essentialist argument be that addiction is entirely a result of certain genes that someone inherits? Yeah, that's a good example. And like we just said, I don't know of any prominent neuroscientists that argue that addiction is exclusively a byproduct of genetics or physiology. Okay, so... And you said that biological essentialism has been used to support some nasty efforts in the past. What are you hinting at? Well, some atrocity in the past were justified, at least in part, using philosophies based on essentialist arguments. A clear example of this is the Holocaust during World War II, though other genocides share what is basically a horribly misinformed and therefore misappropriated argument that contains elements of biological essentialism. Ah, I see. Yeah, so these are horribly inaccurate perspectives that were, and are, based on poor and primitive understandings of genetics that have been used to justify disgusting efforts. I'm no historian, and so I haven't done the work to know if these arguments were sincerely held beliefs, or really just convenient excuses that exploited ideas that were part of the zeitgeist to mobilize groups in pursuit of power. Regardless, in the final analysis, this history of a, quote, dark side of having been used to stigmatize, exploit, and exterminate minority groups, end quote, as David Courtright says, has inspired an almost instinctual skepticism among the social scientific community of paradigms that include elements of biological essentialism. So to step back, the fact that arguments from biology have been used to justify racism and genocide is at least part of the reason that some sociologists and psychologists are unconvinced by the brain disease model of addiction. Basically, yeah. And there are some contemporary examples of that argument. So, for example, the chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University, Carl Hart, um, has been arguing that the brain disease model is not only wrong, but perpetuates discriminatory drug practices. Wow, so that seems like a pretty strong statement to make, and it contradicts the brain disease model pretty head-on, right? Yeah, I think it does, both because it contradicts the foundational perspective of NIDA, and it sort of accuses people who'd hate to think of themselves as prejudiced as being just that, not on purpose, but implicitly. And he's coming from a place of personal experience, having grown up in a community that was resource-poor and impoverished, as he describes it. So he makes the argument that addiction isn't a disease. Yeah, and he pretty passionately argues that there's little evidence that addiction is a brain disease. And then he goes just one step further to suggest that the whole concept of addiction as a brain disease is prejudiced and results in outcomes that are unjust. And what about the things we talked about that are the basis of the disease model, like the SNPs associated with addiction? While I was reading through his um, arguments, I did kind of wonder if he's thoroughly considered all of the domains of research that are used to support the disease model. Or, if you'd simply argue that, you know, regardless of that work, this kind of evidence isn't practically useful to either understand or treat addiction. 
So for example, um, while I read through his publication in Nature from February of this year, he makes the argument that we're nowhere near the ability to distinguish the brains of addicted people from those of non-addicted. And then he quickly jumps from that claim, which in and of itself, I think would be pre considered pretty controversial, to arguing that the brain disease model ought not get nearly as much funding as it does. And is that his main argument, that the brain disease model of addiction shouldn't be the prevailing model? Well, it's just one of his arguments, but I don't think I'm misrepresenting his perspective in saying that it seems to be a primary assertion. However, he makes several points in this and other articles, many of which I think are very convincing. I mean, I, I think the thread that knits them together is that he highlights the significant social factors that influence how the government confronts drug use and how they can influence predispositions to addiction. Do you find that argument convincing? I mean, from what we've discussed in the past, it seems like you would. Oh, yeah, definitely. But not the claim that biomedical science is nowhere near the ability to distinguish the brain activities of addicts from non-addicts. Absolutely. I mean, I certainly appreciate the argument that both policy and societal factors play extremely significant and perhaps even dominant roles in determining risks for addiction. And honestly, I don't think I've ever met an addiction researcher who'd argue otherwise. So put more simply, I mean, if someone just isn't exposed to heroin or oxycodone, they're of course extremely unlikely to become addicted to heroin or oxycodone. It's just not in their environment and therefore not available to them. This simple logic, by the way, leads to severely flawed policy um, with regards to drug use and addiction. How so? Well, if that's the case, then if you just remove the drugs from the environment of everyone, including people predisposed to addiction and otherwise, then you'll effectively prevent and therefore cure addiction. And, and frankly, this basically characterizes the current legislative and law enforcement approach to preventing drug addiction. Seize any illicit substances that are discovered and severely punish those who traffic them. So in other words, the war on drugs, which we discussed in part one of these podcasts on addiction. Exactly. The war on drugs is fundamentally based on the idea that if you prevent access to drugs in the first place, then addiction to them simply won't be an option. However, in practice, this hasn't proven to be as straightforward as was perhaps expected. But the policy surrounding drug use and prohibition is perhaps a topic for another day. Yes, I think so. So let's get back to the idea that biomedical science isn't close to being able to distinguish the brains of addicts from non-addicts. Right, so the societal and environmental factors are clearly important. If a potential addict is never exposed to a drug, it's essentially impossible for them to become addicted to that drug, right? Similarly, if someone has limited access to resources like job opportunities or, or social support networks more generally, and of course if they're punished for drug-related crimes way more than other people, ruining future professional prospects, these factors will play huge roles in determining risks of developing addictions. But I do think he's missing some very important lines of evidence that may be causing a bit too much confidence in the idea that genetic predispositions don't exist at all. Genetic predispositions to addiction? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so is there a lot of research regarding a genetic predisposition to addiction, or is this sort of a new line of scientific evidence? Well, newish, I suppose, in the context of the history of addiction that we discussed in the last podcast episode. And an argument that our addiction historian David Courtright highlights from a book first published in the early 60s called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn says, all new scientific paradigms encounter opposition, much of it socially or politically motivated. Paradigms that can both explain familiar problems and unresolved puzzles usually went out in the end, assuming the mantle of the new, quote, normal science. And so, judging from the uh, presentations and posters that I saw at the Society for Neuroscience Conference in Washington, D.C. In, in November, the brain disease model of addiction has definitely become the new, quote, normal science. But wouldn't someone like Dr. Carl Hart argue that this is a byproduct of the fact that only studies that embrace that dis brain disease model get funding? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that's both the argument that he'd likely make and also a good and valid point. But I think it's also due to the fact that there's just quite a bit of genetic data upon which the researchers now stand as we look further towards the causes of addiction. Okay, maybe we should have some examples of genetic evidence that supports the brain disease model of addiction. But I have a more basic question that might sound dumb. Why would the brain have evolved an ability to get addicted to drugs? That's actually an excellent question, and it's absolutely not dumb. I think it falls into a category of questions regarding evolution that stem from an extremely common misconception of how evolution works. One way to think of this is proposed by Dr. Uh, Michael Kuhar, a professor of neuropharmacology at Emory University and former branch chief at NIDA. 
And so um, he argues that the brain co-evolved with a diversity of neurotransmitters. Over the course of millions of years, even before humans existed, the brains of simpler animals had neurotransmitters and, therefore, developed biochemical ways to manage levels of neurotransmitters. Things like reuptake proteins or enzymes that degrade neurotransmitters are at every single synapse in the brain, and they all operate to ensure that the level of any neurotransmitter doesn't get out of control, doesn't get too high or too low, which would cause the animal to become dysfunctional somehow, right? Perhaps resulting in an inability to contract muscles or be in a state of permanent muscle contraction. The brain, over the course of these millions of years, didn't, however, evolve with regular exposure to a wide variety of drugs, which can bind neurotransmitter receptors in ways that our own neurotransmitters never naturally would. Some drugs combined our neurotransmitter receptors for more than 10 times longer than a natural neurotransmitter or endogenous neurotransmitter, which results in activation of the receptors at significantly greater levels than our natural or endogenous neurotransmitters ever could. And so as a result, a drug can interact with our brain in a way that exceptionally rare experiences do. Rare experiences like what? Well, I haven't seen a study that actually compares these types of brain activities, and probably for a pretty understandable reason, right? But I, I wouldn't be surprised if the brain activity induced by you know, like winning the lottery or getting a massive raise from, from your boss might be comparable to a moderate dose of cocaine. And both are pretty uncommon things that a person might encounter. Right, though, you know, someone addicted to cocaine can make the drug a pretty frequent encounter, right? While someone who gets a massive raise can't really experience that as frequently. But maybe that's why people start buying things like Lamborghinis and yachts, to keep those reward neurotransmitters flowing. That's actually probably not too far off. Okay, then let's get into the genetics of addiction. Is there an easy way to sum this up, or should we just go through some examples? Well, I think the first thing that we should acknowledge is that it's extremely rare for any disease or disorder to arise from just one gene or mutation. This is why the study of genetics hasn't already put us on the path to curing every pathology. Oftentimes, it's a combination of a wide variety of genes, each of which can interact with the environment in a variety of ways. That leads to increased or decreased susceptibilities to pathologies. So that's neither nature nor nurture exclusively, as you say all the time. Yeah, that's right. But let's talk a bit about the nature aspect of addiction. What are some examples of genetic predispositions to addiction? Okay, well, there's a variety of reviews available for each type of drug that you can think of. So for example, a review um, from last year by Kevin Jensen or Jensen at Yale reviews some of the GWAS data reporting associations between genetics and stimulant and opioid use. And just as a reminder, GWAS means Genome-Wide Association Studies. That's right. Um, and he discusses, for example, several SNPs, short nucleotide polymorphisms, that map to the KCNG2 gene, which is a gene that encodes a potassium voltage-gated ion channel. Okay, so without going into what exactly potassium voltage-gated ion channels are... Right, right. If you want to get an idea of what ion channels are and, and, and why they're important, just check out our first podcast episode. But the short story is that ion channels control when, how frequently, and where neurons fire their impulses. And so a slight difference in a gene that encodes one of those was associated with increased risks of addiction? Opioid addiction in particular. And another study compared heroin-dependent daily users, 1,167 to be specific, to heroin-exposed subjects that didn't end up developing a daily habit, which were 161 people. And they showed that the strongest genomic association mapped to a protein associated with a specific kind of glutamate receptor. And subsequent studies identified specific regions of this gene, and perhaps even brain regions, within which uh, this SNP predisposes people to opioid addiction. And so he goes on to review further genetic research that supports um, the idea that there are specific genomic sequences that appear to be associated with these predispositions to opioid addiction but they'll just continue to sound like combinations of letters and numbers. So there's SNPs and other forms of genetic variations in things like methyltransferases, protein kinases, and, and proteins that regulate things like intracellular biochemistry and synaptic transmission. Okay, so the researchers are analyzing the genes of these two populations of people, the ones that develop um, you know, daily addictions versus the ones that don't. And they're looking at these uh, two broad uh, the broad differences between the two groups. Right. Uh, and it could be, you know, like you said, a bunch of different genes that are different between the two groups. But just because those two groups have those differences doesn't mean that those genes are responsible for 
the differences in, addic- in addiction. Yeah, right. I mean, they, they could be, you know, uh, responsible for other distinctions between these groups. And so it, it is sort of like casting a wide net. But it does help us to hone in on parts of our physiology that are, you know, perhaps more likely participating in the increased likelihood of developing addiction versus, you know, being able to use these drugs and not develop addiction. Okay, got it. So the details do sound a little more complicated, (laughs) and so we probably shouldn't divide dive into it right now. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. The point is that we're at a stage in studying the relationships between genetics and addiction where we're exploring whether variability in very specific proteins might be contributors to the variability that we see in addiction. An interesting finding, though, that sometimes arises in these types of studies is an overlap in the associations between predispositions to developing addiction and predispositions to psychiatric conditions like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, many of which are frequently comorbid with addiction. And by comorbid, you mean two conditions occurring at the same time in the same person. That's exactly right. Addiction is very frequently comorbid with other psychiatric conditions, particularly mood-related conditions like depression or anxiety-associated conditions, but also conditions like schizophrenia. And so, in fact, my most recently published uh, academic article focuses on specifically that overlap and how that frequent comorbidity is associated with overlapping brain circuitry. I think that might qualify as the nerdiest plug for a publication ever. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, I think that synthesizing data collect, uh, collected by different domains of neuroscience will reveal relationships between conditions that were previously considered to be distinct. So as I was writing the article, I realized that this was an effort that's particularly inspiring to me. But in any case, it's very intriguing to me personally when this type of genetic research demonstrates associations between variations in genetics and a combination of psychiatric conditions that are known to be comorbid. Why is that? Well, think of it this way. If two diseases are very frequently observed occurring at the same time in people, it would make sense that very similar biology or experiences might be causing both of them, right? Sure. So in other words, the same biology might be the cause of both conditions. Right, or the same combination of biology and experience, or perhaps the same experience alone, though I suspect that might be even more difficult to prove with the same degree of confidence. Okay, so to get back to the GWAS data, You said that there were similar efforts, but for stimulant addiction, right? That's right. And similarly, various groups have shown associations between predispositions to stimulant addiction and specific SNPs. All right. Well, I guess it might be more interesting for us to just move on and provide the studies and the references for a person who might not be a scientist, but wants to investigate the studies for themselves. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So are there examples of how the brain disease model of addiction has led to progress in understanding or treating addiction? It's worth noting that we haven't been studying addiction in the way that we currently do for a particularly long time, right? We've evolved quite a bit from early attributions of addiction to moral failures, like we talked about last time. Our understanding of the relationships between addictive drugs and the mesolimbic dopamine circuit has helped us to understand part of what distinguishes a drug like heroin from a drug like ibuprofen, right? Or even stimulants like cocaine and caffeine. And I'm guessing that heroin and cocaine activate that dopamine circuit we've discussed, while ibuprofen and caffeine don't. That's right, or at least not nearly as much in the case of caffeine. So then, understanding how the use of these drugs with addictive potential change the brain after long-term use has helped us to understand a variety of processes in the brain, from how the brain changes after just one exposure to nicotine, to what the brain looks like after 20 years of smoking cigarettes, from a circuit level to a neuronal level. And I'm guessing similar work's been done for drugs like heroin or methamphetamine? I mean, if it hasn't already been done, it's currently underway, enumerating the effects that drug exposure has on things like synaptic connectivity uh, to receptor expression, right? But then there's also the effect that the drug exposure has on genetic regulation, and particularly epigenetic regulation. Epigenetic regulation? Right, so so epigenetics, definitely a topic for another podcast, is sort of a secondary code that governs the primary code. The primary code being our genome? Exactly. Sort of like if you look at a page of blueprints, right, there's a picture that's drawn or drafted, I think is the, the technical term, to very specific technical specifications. But then you can probably imagine a bunch of notes written that guide the evolution of the blueprints into a building of some sort, right? Like numbers or directions as to what things will ultimately look like inside of the building or when and where things will be built. Epigenetics is very similar, guiding when and where in the body various genes are expressed. An epigenetic mark can make one gene more or less likely to be expressed. And while your genome doesn't really change in response to environmental exposures, your epigenome does. So I'm thinking it's kind of like when you have sheet music, the notes that are written is our genome, but then all the accents, the 
the pianos and the fortes, the dynamics, those are, are epigenetic art, epigenome. That's a really, really good comparison. I actually really, I prefer that comparison, honestly. <laughs> Nicely done. You're welcome. <laughs> I think you officially understand the relationship, <laughs> right? <laughs> so our epigenome changes in response to the environment. I suppose that means that taking drugs would change someone's epigenetics? That's right. Okay, so before we go on, a quick note from our sponsors. Helix Sleep offers something that doesn't exist in any other mattress retailer. A completely customized mattress personalized to your unique preference and sleeping style. And it won't set you back thousands of dollars. So go to helixsleep.com wired and take their simple two to three minute sleep quiz. And they'll use your responses to design uh, a personalized mattress for you. And it should be the most comfortable mattress you will ever sleep on. So go to helixsleep.com wired and you'll get $50 towards your custom mattress. Wouldn't it be cool if they could just take your genome or your epigenome and design a mattress based on your DNA? <laughs> well, yeah, that would be a pretty impressive uh, innovation by a mattress company. But, maybe, hey. maybe they should hire you to consult for them. <laughs> maybe that's why they chose the name Helix. <laughs> Our next sponsor is Harper Wild. They are an e-commerce bra company that takes the BS out of bra shopping with free home try-ons and the simplest shopping experience known to women. The bras are designed for women, by women, and Harper Wild gives back through donations to put young girls through school in over 100 countries. So visit harperwild.com to check it out and use the promo code WIRED to get 10% off. And I happen to know somebody told me that they, they purchased some, some bras from Harper Wild and she said they were extraordinarily comfortable. So go to harperwild.com, that's um, H-A-R-P-E-R, W-I-L-D-E dot com, um, and then use the promo code WIRED to get 10% off. Okay, well, if we're not going to go deep into epigenetics right now, let's make sure to discuss one of the most widely consumed drugs, alcohol. Okay, yeah, good idea. Believe it or not, the heritability of alcoholism is estimated to be around 50 to 60%. So does that mean then that at least half of alcoholism is explained by genetics? Not quite. So there's a difference between heritable and inheritable which I know is pretty frustrating given that they're just two letters different. Uh, but the major difference is that heritable traits aren't necessarily genetic, while inheritable traits by necessity are. And so if you can remember that inheritable means inseparable from the genes, while heritable means habitat influenced, then you can remember that inherited traits can only come from genetic inheritance, while heritable traits can come from both genetics and environment. I assume that's how you, you remember the difference, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so alcoholism is estimated to be 50 to 60% heritable, which means that it could come from either genes or just environmental learnings. Right, right. A alcoholism is a, is a great example of an addiction that's particularly tough to parse. It's a highly polygenic and heterogeneous condition, which makes tailoring treatments oriented to specific populations particularly challenging. And polygenic, meaning many genes, and heterogeneous, meaning not the same? <laughs> yeah, so a bunch of different unique genes have been associated with increased risks for addiction. And, perhaps more intuitively, many life experiences can increase the likelihood that one might develop alcoholism. An interesting statistic, though, is the fact that the prevalence of alcoholism has increased in the last decade in the general U.S. population among people 18 years or older. The 12-month prevalence of alcoholism increased from 8.5% between 2001 to 2002 to 12.7% between 2012 and 2013, while the lifetime prevalence between 2001 and 2002 increased from 30.3% to 43.6% between 2012 and 2013. Okay, so that sounds like a big change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I assume that the 12-month prevalence, that figure, means that a certain percentage of people experience a condition at least once within 12 months, while a lifetime prevalence includes people who experience the condition at some point within their lives. Exactly right. And despite this increase in alcoholism, most who suffer from the condition never receive any evidence-based treatment. This might be due to the perception that alcoholism isn't a medical condition with a viable treatment, but George Koob, whom you might remember as the director of what's basically the alcoholism group at, uh, at the NIH, he argues that more work is needed to understand the biology of alcoholism because this would almost certainly aid in the development of more effective pharmacological therapies for the condition. So am I right in thinking that the director is saying that since we don't know all of the biology that underlies alcoholism, 
we need to continue studying it so we can develop better treatments for it. And by that, he means better medicinal or pharmacological treatments for the condition. Yeah, pretty much. And the reason that this becomes particularly important is because, well, imagine that you're in charge of recruiting patients for a clinical trial for a new treatment for alcoholism. Since there's no specific biological definition of alcoholism that's been defined quite yet, imagine if the clinical definition of alcoholism changes over the course of the five years that you conduct your clinical trial. I imagine that would be super frustrating. Exactly. That would translate to different people technically falling under your recruitment parameters because what qualifies as an alcoholic has changed since the beginning of your study, right? If you're recruiting for a clinical trial, but while you're still conducting the trial, new behaviors are considered as falling under the parameters of alcoholism, your clinical trial is, all of a sudden, far less able to effectively detect an effect on what now qualifies as people uh, who are alcoholics or perhaps disqualifies people who are still in your study because you haven't included the new people who would now be considered alcoholics, or some of the people that you included before that would have been rejected at the beginning of the study. Exactly. It'd be like testing the quality of like an innovative, super light, fancy bicycle frame that's intended for use by professional cyclists. This thing has cutting edge durability and lightness, and you know, it's, it's everything. But if you test all of these amazing cycling innovations on someone that's literally never cycled before, rather than someone who's not only experienced cycling, but they've raced in the Tour de France, uh, you know, the Tour de France of addiction, right? Well, then you're not really seeing the best uses of all the technology you just invented, right? It'd be like putting me behind the wheel of a Bugatti, uh, Bugatti Chiron or, or Chiron. I never really know how to pronounce it. I don't, I don't know how to drive cars like that. I don't even know how to pronounce cars like that. Is, is it, is, I think it's Chiron or Chiron. The thing moves, the point, is that it moves from zero to 250 miles per hour in 42 seconds. And I most definitely would not sit in that car with you driving it. <laughs> and yeah, with good reason, right? I'm just not the kind of driver or buyer to whom they're marketing this land-borne rocket ship, right? Similarly, you wouldn't want to test the efficacy of a treatment on a group of people who just aren't suited to a given treatment. If you're trying to show an effect of an innovation, you want to make sure that the beneficiaries of the innovation are the ones that are being tested. If you invented a super light and excellent bicycle or an impossibly fast car, you want the best cyclists or uh, to test out, you know, to show its value, not the people who have no relationship with the innovation. Okay, I can see why you wouldn't want someone who doesn't know how to drive to test a Bugatti, but why wouldn't you want everyone who's addicted to alcohol or any drug for that matter to test how effective a treatment for addiction might be? Well, if you remember that polygenic nature of alcoholism, both genetic and experiential factors contributing to its development, not every single person will benefit from the same exact treatment. Some people might benefit from a treatment that alters addiction-associated activity in one part of the brain, while another person who has a different cause of addiction would likely benefit from a slightly different treatment. In other words, since we know that there are some people who might benefit from a particular treatment, and there may be people that you know won't, and the goal, of course, is to find a better treatment for as many people as we can. We want to make sure that we're optimizing our ability to match people up with treatments that'll work best for them. But isn't that kind of like manipulating the data? Like, if I were to hear that a pharmaceutical company was testing a new drug, but they were only testing it on people that they know it'll work on, I mean, I can see how that makes sense in some ways, but it also strikes me as not entirely on the level. I know exactly what you mean, and I absolutely understand how it sort of has like an odor of milking the data for significance, right? Or, or maybe more accurately, it seems like they're picking a sample to ensure their results are significant, which means that they're picking a sample that's not representative of the greater population that the sample is supposed to be representing, right, statistically. But what's important to keep in mind is that because of the diversity of genetics, individual drug responses, life experiences, and environmental exposures, and so on, it may very well be the case that a treatment, which is effective for some people because they have specific combinations of genes and experiences, just may not be effective for people who don't have that same combination. So it's like what we really need is a certain treatment, one treatment for one group of people that have a certain combination of SNPs and then a specific treatment for another group of people who have a different combination of SNPs. But, you know, both of these people, you know, their SNPs manifest as alcoholism. Yeah, that, that is sort of like a prevailing theory that's being explored right now. And since the priority is to find something that's effective for as many people as possible, we're okay with, you know, doing things this way, kind of fudging the samples? <laughs> well, I mean, not quite. So, so think of it this way. We want to make sure that the sample of people 
in the experiment is representative of some larger population. If we define the larger population as groups of people for whom this treatment is most likely to be effective, like for example, heroin addicts with a mutation at a specific part of the genome, right? like you were saying, that have specific SNPs, then we wanna make sure that the sample of study participants we select is actually representative of that specific population rather than expect it to be you know, effective and representative of the entire human population of seven and a half billion people. Do we do that for any other kinds of medical treatments? Oh, absolutely, right? And I think this is a great example of how we might be approaching addiction with poorly calibrated expectations. A great example is, is breast cancer. One of the most famous or infamous genes associated with breast cancer is HER2 which stands for a Human Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, which is a, a gene that plays a role in the development of breast cancer, right? It encodes um, a receptor that typically regulates how normal breast cells grow and divide, and it's overexpressed in about 15 to 30 percent of cases of breast cancer, as well as a few other types of cancer. Overexpressed meaning that the protein that the gene encodes is expressed more than usual. That's right. And how does that relate to our example of a study selecting a sample that's more likely to respond to a given treatment? Well, we know that some cases of breast cancer exhibit overly high levels of this receptor, HER2. We also have treatments that are specific to this kind of cancer. And they're called HER2 positive? Yeah, that's right. There are treatments for breast cancer that are only effective when HER2 is overexpressed, like a trastuzumab, which is marketed as Herceptin, right, for example. When there is suspicion that someone might have breast cancer, screening is done to see if it might be HER2 positive. And this is because if the cancer is HER2 positive, then certain drugs will be much more effective. Okay, I think I see where you're going with this. Right, so similarly, if we find that certain SNPs tend to be present in someone who's addicted to a specific drug, and we also find that certain treatments for addiction to that drug are only effective in people who have those same SNPs, then we'll want to know about that treatment opportunity, even if that treatment doesn't work for every person who's addicted to the drug. So in other words, just because a treatment isn't effective in every single person with a disease or a disorder, is still effective in some people with those diseases or disorders. And some progress is better than no progress. Exactly. Okay, so we spent a fair bit of time discussing the history of addiction. The relationship between society and addictive drugs has clearly evolved over time, and the concept of addiction has also changed over time. We've discussed some of the arguments for and against conceiving of addiction as a disease versus a disorder. I think I see where this is going. Right. So what do you think addiction is? Well, this is a part of our conversation that I've been looking forward to the least, to be honest. There's just no way my perspective is going to be satisfying to everyone. And since I'm not ultimately going to be picking a side, it's almost certain to be unsatisfying to a variety of people. Anyways. Um, I brought this question up with a bunch of my friends at their bachelor party. Okay, typical bachelor party discussion. Right, yeah, so it was kind of funny. So when I brought it up, everyone looked at each other like, are we really going to talk about this? Then the bachelor put out an argument, and then everybody jumped in. So was there a disagreement? Absolutely, and it boiled down to the same distinctions we were making in the beginning. Like comparing addiction to cancer. Yeah, exactly. And there was even a moment where one of them said, it's kind of pointless to think of this question from this perspective, given how research gets funded. Pointless? How? Why? Well, I mean, just because the questions that get funded are very specific. Specific how? Well, as we've discussed, NIDA explicitly embraces the brain disease model of addiction. And so, to do science in the arena of addiction, the questions we ask are at least implicitly couched in the framework of that brain disease model of addiction. This doesn't mean that it's entirely impossible to explore other avenues, but this fundamental assumption certainly pervades a large proportion of research projects. And as a result, this question isn't necessarily top of mind among researchers of addiction. And this refers back to a conversation we had last time. Right. So just because each addiction researcher doesn't ask this broad of a question doesn't mean that we can't all contribute to small parts right, of the treatment or treatments of addiction. All right. So clearly, even among your colleagues, there are disagreements. Where do you land? Well, while I don't agree with his characterization and handling of the MDMA studies that we discussed in the last podcast episode, I kind of like how Alan Leshner, a former NIDA director, describes addiction. The, quote, quintessential biobehavioral disorder. Kind of as in you do like it, or kind of as in you literally only sort of like it? Literally only sort of. <laughs> I like the inclusion of the biological basis of the condition, given the evidence that there's not only a biological basis for it, but that it's heritable, and specifically inheritable. Similarly, I think folks like Carl Hart make a crucial point. 
This is a condition that simply requires for a specific set of environmental factors to be present for the condition to manifest. So frankly, so long as we accept that both factors are true and important, then I'm not too concerned with the specific terminology that we use. We could call it a biobehavioral disease or disorder. It's the biobehavioral terminology that's important from my perspective. I really think addiction might be in a class of its own. It might be sui generis. As a result, combinations of both pharmacological and psychotherapeutic interventions may not only be more effective than either on their own, but may both be required for the effective treatment of addiction. Sounds like it's not worth taking aside here. Yeah, I suppose so. And while I completely understand why people are so invested in this distinction, I think it's important for us to not fall victim to applying a rigid theoretical framework to a condition that we're still in the process of characterizing. Okay, so how about we call it biobehavioral condition? Sounds good to me. Okay, well with that, I think we've talked about this as much as anyone can probably tolerate. <laughs> so why don't we call it a conversation here? And if any listeners have made it this far, thank you very much for listening, and we'd love an iTunes rate. <laughs> yes, thank you very much for listening. God, this is like you're breaking down as a human. Just, just let it go. Just let it go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Genetic predispositions Shh. to addiction. So lucky there's no camera involved right now. <laughs> God, it sounds like you're high. <laughs> you sound so not sober. Oh gosh. Okay. Genetic predisposition. <laughs> Predispositions. Got it.